Well, good morning again. Before we get started uh, with our message today, I'd like you to pull your card out that's in the seat pocket in front of you, or behind you, perhaps. <laughs> um, and we we're all going to fill these out. And so if you are a, a member regular with us, then just give us your name. We would greatly appreciate that. And then if any of the information on here has changed, such as uh, cell phone number or email address or even um, street address. We would love to be able to update our records with that. Uh, then on the back side, some, uh, just a place to request some information is there along with um, some next steps that you may be interested in taking. And then finally, there's a spot for prayer requests. Uh, and so we send these out on Monday and the, uh, to the entire church. We pray for them specifically on Tuesday at a prayer session we have here. Um, but if it's something that you would prefer to keep private, then you can just check this little box up at the top that says keep private. And uh, we, that will not get sent out to the entire church. That just comes to me. And uh, so we're just going to take a minute now to fill these out, and then we're going to collect them, and we will move on with our service.
All right. Before we start, a couple of things. If you're a note taker, I've got a couple of options for you. Um, every week we provide a sermon note outline. This one's a little more detailed than some, but we always have a place for you to take notes. The other alternative is that if you want to download our app, okay, all right, where did you just go? There you are. So if you want to download our app, you go down here to this where it says notes, and you tap on that, and the notes basically come up with kind of a fill-in-the-blank sort of format that you can just add, you know, whatever you want to take. There's a place for more notes if you'd like, and then in the end, you can actually send yourself the whole note package via an email. So you just send yourself an email and all your notes show up in your inbox. So there you go. All right, Lord God, I just thank you for uh, this word and uh, just ask you to, uh, to be in it. Give you thanks and praise and we lift this to you in Jesus' name, amen. Would anyone like one of these? All right, Jarrett, would you mind? Just the people that have their hands up. And while he's doing that, I'll just go ahead and, and get started. So I guess it was about 30 years or so ago, there was a, a very popular parenting book that came out. It was called Parenting Isn't for Cowards. And if, uh, if you have been a parent, then you pretty well understand what that means. Um, parenting is, is tough. It's something that takes uh, a lot of courage. It takes tenacity, persistence deep love, unselfishness, and a whole lot of other things. Parenting is definitely not for cowards or sissies. Uh, it may be, in fact, maybe the most demanding job on the planet. Because you have, if you're a parent, then you have the challenge of literally raising another human being. Um, and that is an incredibly complex task. I don't think it's necessarily any accident that that whole process starts with something called labor. <laughs> and as difficult and painful as labor is or can be, it's probably the easy part relative to what comes after that. Um, it just gets harder as time goes on. Sorry, kids, that's just the way it is. <laughs> and the, the problem is that just about the time that you've got this parenting thing figured out, you're wise, you have all this knowledge, you know what to do, then they leave, and you're unemployed. So, you know, really about the time you actually know what you're doing as a parent, your kids are gone. So, uh, and the, the contrast is, you certainly don't know what you're doing when you start. It's truly a job that you uh, get on the job training with, and uh, you get to experiment. <laughs> your child. So today we're going to start this series called The Intentionally Great Family. And, and I will admit up front, this material is not all original with me. This was something that a, um, Rick Warren did uh, a while back. Uh, but I thought it was so excellent that I wanted to uh, kind of package it and present it to the church here. Um, and so the question is, so how do you have an intentionally great family. And we're going to look over the course of the next several weeks at a lot of the different implications about that. Um, but in particular, what we're going to look, out, look at today and then also next week is how to bring out the best in children. So, you, But you may be saying, well, wait a minute, I don't have kids. Maybe my kids are gone or um, whatever. You're just not a parent. Well, I'll let you in on a little bit of secret. 
this is not just a way to bring out the best in kids. This is really a way to bring out the best in anybody. Um, whether it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, boss, fellow employee, best friend, whatever the case may be, there are five principles that we're going to talk about. And if you will do these things, then you are going to bring out the best in whoever else that you're dealing with. But they work especially well with children. Um, so we're just going to look at the first two today, and then we're going to look at the other three next week. And so principle number one, the first way to bring out the best in a child, is this. Accept their uniqueness completely. We all need somebody who is going to accept our uniqueness completely. It's, this is really the starting point. This is a way of recognizing somebody else's value. Okay? And because every child, even if you have more than one in your family, they're all different. Right? Every child is completely different. They're, they're not alike, really, in any sense of the word, word. And so that means that you really need to treat each one differently. And I think it's interesting. We talk about you know, diversity as one of our, our, our key points right here. And, but God really loves diversity because he's never made any two people look exactly alike. Right? If you look down the row that you're in right now, everybody that's in your row talks differently, acts differently, looks differently, probably smells differently, hopefully good. See, human beings are the ones that make clones. God never makes clones. He never copies anything. Even identical twins are different in thousands of ways. And so, just as God makes no two snowflakes alike, he really makes no two people alike. We have different handprints, um, voice prints, eye, pr eye prints, personalities. I, when I was at Butler, I played basketball with a set of identical twins. And at first glance, it was very hard to tell them apart. When we first met them, we had no idea which was which, John and Don, if, that wasn't, if it wasn't already hard enough, <laughs> their names were almost the same. But uh, in fact, one of the coaches made one put on one white shoelace and one blue shoelace so he could tell which was which. Now knowing the two of them, they probably switched it. Um, but once you got to know them, you could tell that, you, you, I could, after a while, I knew which one I was talking to just by glance, because they were just a little different, even though they, to the casual observer, looked identical, okay? So here's what the Bible says about our uniqueness. This is Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you know that you were born, that you, that before you were born, God prepared um, in advance what he wanted you to do in life. He laid out this life of good works that he wanted you to accomplish. Now, you can miss the plan, but God created you for a plan and a purpose. And so... I want you, this, the scripture says that we are God's workmanship, and I want you to remember 
that word workmanship because it literally means masterpiece, like a poem or a work of art. And so, you know, if you think about it, each child is this unique work of art. Now, sometimes we look at a work of art and we really don't understand it, right? And I think that translates, you know, sometimes we look at kids, we're like, what the heck are you doing? Um, but the point is that they are nevertheless unique. And, you know, in thinking about this, one of the reasons that I think God makes us all unique is so that everything gets done in the world, right? So if, if we all liked to, to do the same thing, there would be a lot of stuff that was left undone. You know, somebody says, hey, I, I, I love math, I love numbers. Okay, well, then, so you've got accountants and engineers, um, you know, math teachers and so forth. Then you have somebody else who goes, well, I, I hate numbers, but I'm really good with words. Okay, well, now we've got writers and script developers for films and, and all kinds of other things. Some other person will say, well, I don't like numbers and I don't like to write. Well, but they're good mechanically or they're good artistically or they're good at sales and closing deals and that sort of thing. So it's just all part of, of God's plan. And see, the implication of this for parents is that you cannot treat your kids the same. Now, you've probably read in some parenting book somewhere where some expert has said, well, to be fair, I just treat all my kids the same. Well, there's a word for that, stupid. <laughs> because what works with one kid doesn't work for all the kids. Right? What you, what, what you could say to one child that really encourages them is going to completely discourage your other child because they're just different and they don't maybe hear things the same way. Um, they're, they're originals. They're not carbon copies of one another. They don't have to compete with anybody else. And in fact, they really can't because they're unique. The only person they could truly compete with would be an exact duplicate of themselves. And so it's, it's part of our job as parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles or whomever, and as I said, this works as well with, with other people that you're in relationship with, to um, help them understand that they don't need to be like everybody else. Right? You don't say stuff like, well, why can't you be more like your brother? Why can't you be more like your sister? Okay? God didn't make them that way. It's pointless to say that. And so what he wants is he wants for us to learn about our uniqueness. And, and there's a problem with that, or in doing that. There are these two enemies that fight your uniqueness, or they fight the uniqueness of children, or of really anybody else. They fight the uniqueness of everybody that's on your row right now. And they fight the uniqueness of children constantly. And the first one is comparing, right? The pressure to compare ourselves against somebody else is all around us. And I would say it is probably much worse today than it was 10 to 15 years ago because we now have this wonderful thing called social media. Uh, which is like one giant comparison tool, 
right? You know, if I take a picture of the dessert that I have, then you've got to take a picture of a better dessert and put that on Facebook, right? Or if I take a picture of me having fun somewhere, then you have to take a picture of you having more fun somewhere else. It's just this constant comparison. It's sort of like social media have, has sort of made comparing uh, a, a sport. We compare academics. Well, how good were your grades? We compare athletics. Well, how skilled and coordinated are you? We compare appearance. Well, she's cuter than her, or he's more handsome than him. We compare our economic status. Well, so-and-so has more money than I do. Heck, we even compare our lawns. <laughs> right? We compare everything, status, popularity, you know, you name it. And I think this is one of the reasons why IQ tests are beginning to fall from favor, and it's because they're comparative. All right? See, we now know, which they didn't originally, that there are at least 11 or 12 different kinds of intelligence. And so an IQ test typically really only rates one, and that is, um, you know, how you can learn. So if you, can, if you know how to learn a bunch of ideas and you write them down in a coherent paragraph, then they rate you as having high intelligence. But, you know, that kind of verbal intelligence is only one kind. There's mechanical intelligence. Um, I can remember, I went to school with this guy, um, this is in grade school, and he was not book smart, I guess this would be the term. He just wasn't, you know, very bright verbally. He struggled. But I'm telling you, in grade school, this guy could tear down and rebuild an engine like the most seasoned mechanic. That's, what I'm t that's an aptitude, that's a type of intelligence that I, to this day, don't possess. <laughs> you know... I can change the oil, maybe, but that's about where my skill set stops. Um, so there's mechanical intelligence. There's, there's maybe athletic intelligence, where people just know how to move and, and to control their bodies in certain ways. You think of gymnasts, perhaps. Uh, there's musical intelligence, artistic intelligence, relational intelligence. That's, that's just the skill of being able to get along with people. And, and honestly, that's a skill that I think most CEOs would pay big money for, right? Um, they, don't, they probably would care less about academic intelligence and more about relational intel intelligence. Can you get along with people? Can you motivate people, right? Things like that. And, you know, there's numeric intelligence and so on and on. And so, you know, this whole idea that, uh, that intelligence or that an IQ test really only scores this one, this one thing. So, you know, we now know you could do poorly on an IQ test, get bad grades in school, go out and build a business and become a billionaire. Now, and all because you have a different kind of intelligence than someone who is just academically smart. And, it's not an exact match, but I always think of the story of Fred Smith, the guy who founded FedEx, Federal Express. Now, he wasn't 
unintelligent because he did his master's, he got his master's in business at Yale. But he wrote a paper uh, in which he proposed the idea the, the, at the very beginning for the business that would become Federal Express. He got a C because the professor told him it wasn't feasible. Right. Fred Smith could probably buy the college now. Um, so what, is, what does the Bible say about this idea of comparing ourselves to others? Well, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 12 says this, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who care commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. And the phrase, they are without understanding, could also be rendered foolish. Right? And so you need to understand that, and you need to teach your kids that. And you need to understand this when you're dealing with other people. You should never compare your kids to somebody else's. You should never compare your wife or your husband to somebody else's. Never compare your job or your home or anything because God says it's foolish. Because we're all unique, right? You could think, well, I'll compare tangerines and submarines because they sound alike, but they're very different. And it's the same is true with people. So don't worry about what peop other people are doing. Don't worry about what their grades are. Don't worry about what work they're doing. Do your own work well, right? Then you'll have something to be proud of, which coincidentally, Scripture says it's okay to be proud of work that you have done well. But never compare yourself with others. And so... We've just got to get over this idea of, of comparing ourselves with, with each other, and especially with comparing our kids, because it's not going to help. It really is not going to help. The other pitfall that we run into is conforming. Conforming is really just another word for people-pleasing. Yeah? It's when you're more worried about what other people think than you're worried about what God thinks of you. Conforming is the pressure to be like somebody else. You know, we see someone on TV and we go, well, I want to look like that. Or I want to be like that, or I want to be cool like that. See, the Bible says conforming is a trap. Proverbs 29 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. What that means is the moment that I start worrying about what other people think about me, I'm dead in the water. Because then, all of a sudden, they become my God. They are the ones that start molding and shaping my life. See, the little secret is, you don't need other people's approval to be happy. You're as happy as you choose to be. So don't blame anybody. If you're not happy, blame yourself. Because your happiness is a choice. You don't need other people's approval. Some of you, more than likely, out in this audience today have been trying to get your parents' approval for maybe 50 years. 
They may even be dead now, and you're still trying to prove yourself to your dad or your mom or somebody else. If you haven't gotten their approval by now, you're probably not going to get it. But you don't need it. You don't need their approval to live a happy, fulfilled, intentional, godly, successful life. If you don't compare, then you won't be tempted to conform. Romans 12.2 says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This world is the world's value system, right? What is the world's value system? Well, status, sex, salary, passion, possession, position, appearance, academics, athletics. And so what God is saying is, don't conform yourself to the standards of the world, but let God transform you inwardly. How? Well, by changing the way you think. God says, I don't want you to be conformed. I want you to be transformed. I don't want you to be like everybody else. I want you to be who I made you to be. But here's a problem. A lot of parents often think that verse is referring to peer pressure. So we tell our kids, don't let some, somebody else push you around. Don't follow the crowd. Or, you know, one of my favorites, if everybody else ran off a cliff, would you? You all hear that or some version of that when you were growing up? And so this is sort of the drumbeat that goes on and on and on. But then what happens? Well, what happens is that parent, parents often want their kids to conform to the world's standards as much as anybody else. You want your kids to fit the normal pattern where God says, no, I made them to be different. They are unique and you're trying to conform them so you look good as a parent. And so the first step, in the first step, we've got to accept our kids or anybody else, right? And how do you know, if you're a parent, how do you know if you have genuinely accepted your kids? It's really simple. You don't insist that they be like you. You see, when we have kids, we want them to like what we like. We want them to eat the same food that we eat. It does make it a little easier at mealtime, but... If we like a particular sport, we want them to be good at that sport. If we're good in a particular area like math or something else, well then we want them to be good at math. They're not you. They're unique. Now, I want to say this very gently because I love you as your pastor. But the world doesn't need any more of you. <laughs> One of you is enough. We don't need two of you running around this planet. God did not give you children just to raise mini-me's. Right? Conforming doesn't come strictly from peer groups. The conforming also comes from parents who insist that their kids be just like them. See, the Bible in 1 Corinthians 13.5, the, the famous love chapter, one of the things it says is that love does not insist on its own way. And so if I love my kids, 
then I don't demand that they do what I like. That they be good at what I'm good at. I just let themselves be who they are, and I let them be who God made them to be. I struggled with this a little bit as a parent. I played basketball, it's no secret. I had, always, I had hopes that one of my two tall children might decide to play basketball. <laughs> well, neither did. All right. Well, okay. You're gonna, yeah, you want to count grade school? Okay, fine. I was, my sights were set a little higher than that. <laughs> but what I want to say is, thank God that I was smart enough, or at least stumbled into this, that I didn't push them in that direction. And part of the reason for that was that my father didn't push me. He simply said, when it came to, you know, I had a bunch of scholarship offers to various schools. But he even told me, he says, if you want to go somewhere else and not play basketball, we can do that. And so it took all the pressure off. Well, of course, that's not what I wanted to do. But the point is, he gave me the freedom to do that. And, and so I tried to follow that example, you know, and so um, Barbara did a variety of things, but I don't know that athletics were really her thing, ultimately. Jarrett ended up playing volleyball, which was great, because I got to kind of learn about a sport that I knew very little of and go with him on some trips and things like that. So, you know, we can't push our kids to be what we want them to be. We're just as bad. Because see, what happens is, these kids are getting the message, well, I can't really be me. Right? I have to be what this other person wants me to be, or I have to be what my parents want me to be, or what my, you know, then you get married and you think, well, I've got to be what my partner wants me to be, and you work on a job, and all of a sudden you, have to, you think, well, I have to be what my professional boss wants me to be. And then all of a sudden you get lost in all of it. The you gets lost in all of it. And so the starting point of bringing out the best in others is just to accept who they are, their uniqueness, totally and completely. See, our goal is to help our children become what God created them to be. You could say in a way that kids aren't meant to be molded, they're meant to be unfolded. Right? Because when you unfold something, you don't necessarily know what's on the inside. It's the same with kids. God knows who it is because he's the one that provided them with their DNA. He sovereignly chose them. He gave them the DNA. He chose which of the genes would be recessive and which of the ones would be dominant. And so this first step in parenting and really the first step in bringing out the best in your kids or in anybody else is that you've got to accept the other person's uniqueness completely. All right? Second, we have to affirm their value constantly. Now, if you've not been out to our house, we have a house that's out in the woods, all right? And it has a lot of windows on it. And so as a result of that, on occasion, birds will f 
fly full steam into one of the windows. Most of the time, they just stun themselves and they get up and fly away after they've sort of got their wits about them again. But on occasion, the impact will kill the bird. It breaks its neck or whatever. And you know what? When that happens, God notices that bird. Why do I know that? Well, in Matthew, Jesus says this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. That's how much God cares about his creation. He notices when a bird falls to the ground. And he tells us, you're far more valuable than that bird is. So as parents, as friends, as spouses, as fellow employees, we need to affirm other people's value constantly. And, and this is more than just simply, hey, kid, I accept you. It's not enough just to accept your kids. You have to affirm them. You have to love them. You have to believe in them. And you have to celebrate them. You have to enjoy them. You can't just say, well, you know, I accept you because God put you in this family and I didn't really have a choice. <laughs> I don't know any parent that would ever say that, but you have to affirm them. And it's not always easy to do that. And we don't do it enough, right? You say, well, why do we, why do we have to do it constantly? It's sort of, I'm always reminded of that story, you know, of the woman who, you know, they've been married 50 years and she goes to her husband and she says, you never tell me that you love me. And the husband says, well, I told you it once, and if anything changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> See, in, in a child's mind and in many other people's mind, there's this scale, okay? One side, they total up all the bad stuff. And on the other side, they total up all the good stuff that they hear, okay? stuff that they feel about themselves, that they're told about themselves. And so when they're out there in the world, is the world piling on good stuff or bad stuff? Usually bad, right? You're worthless. You don't measure up. You're not cute enough. You're not smart enough. You're not athletic enough, and on and on and on. And so all of these little pebbles that everybody puts on that pile are just gradually causing the scale to tip like this. And the thing is, when you have more negative in your life than you have positive, that's usually called depression. <laughs> and there are a lot of depressed kids to say. And it's because nobody in the world is telling them, hey, you're great. You're fantastic. You're God's chosen one. You're unique. And all of those things. So it falls to you to be putting deposits on the positive side so that that positive eventually outweighs the negative that way. So why are you so valuable and why are your kids valuable? Well, I think there's three reasons. First of all, it's because God custom made you. See, you're not from an assembly line. 
when God made you, he, he truly broke the mold. We can't just say that about people that are weird. It's all of us. So you do the math. There will never be anyone like you in the future of human history. You're not only one of a kind, but you're one in billions. And so God custom made you, and that shows your value. Psalm 139 says, You made my whole being. You, God, formed me in my mother's body. I praise you because you made me in an amazing and wonderful way. What you have done is wonderful. And so you were made by God. See, if, if you were to go to an art gallery and you, would, you could go and maybe see a picture uh, that was painted by Picasso, and then right next to that picture is a picture that was painted by Rembrandt, and right next to that picture is a stick figure that was created by Jeff Fain. <laughs> They're not of equal value. See, the fact that you're created by the king of the universe, that he custom designed you, shows your value. Your Father in heaven created you. Secondly, Jesus died for you. That fact in his resurrection is what we're here celebrating today. You want to know how much you're worth? Look at the cross. You're worth dying for. You're worth God saying, I'm going to, die, I'm going to go and die on the cross for that person because I want them in heaven. And so Jesus paid for all of your sins. 1 Peter 1.19 says this, He paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Notice, first God made, and then God paid. Both of these things show value. You know how much something is worth? Well, I'll tell you. Something is worth however much somebody else is willing to pay for it and no more. Okay? So you have a car at home in your garage and it's been there for a long time and you, know, you think it's worth a whole lot. Well, it may be or it may not be. Because that car is worth exactly what somebody is willing to pay for it. You may have a rare baseball card like an original Babe Ruth card or something. And you think it's worth a lot of money. But the fact is, it's worth whatever somebody else is willing to pay for it. And not a penny more. How much are you worth? Look at the cross. Jesus paid for you. God made you. And his son paid for you. And it is that transaction that underscores your intrinsic value. And then third, the Holy Spirit lives in you. God's Spirit indwells you. You are the house of His Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know, Paul says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and in whom you have received from God. See, if you were to go, uh, let's just say, to Beverly Hills, okay, and you want to buy a home, and so you go out with your realtor, uh, and you find a home but nobody famous ever lived there? Well, it's not going to be as, as expensive as if you find this home and you ask the realtor, well, who lived here? And the realtor says, well, Tom Cruise lived here. And uh, before that, Harrison Ford lived here. 
And um, before that, Marilyn Monroe lived here. Well, that jacks the price up a lot, right? Who, the house is worth more because of who lived there. Well, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. So the entire Trinity is a demonstration of your value. The Father created you, the Son died for you, and the Spirit continues to live in you. That is how valuable you are. That is how valuable your kids are. And so when they open their lives to Jesus, he puts his spirit in them. And then they are of infinite value. So how as a parent or even as an adult with influence into a child's life, can we affirm the value of our kids? Or affirm the value of somebody else that we're in a relationship with in some way? Well, I think there's three ways. The first way is visual attention. So in other words, the way you look at your kids reveals how much you value them, right? You know that there's a look that withers and there is a look that affirms. Giving someone visual attention means that you value them. You don't pay attention to things that you don't value. And you don't pay attention to people that you don't value. A lot of people don't realize that your eyes are really a tool for expressing love. The Bible says that your Father in heaven pays great attention to you. So much so that he knows the number of hairs on your head. You don't even know how many hairs you have on your head. But God does. He knows how many hairs on your head. All right, I see some of you smiling, and yeah, I know it's easier to count on some people than it is on others. But God knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows what the original color was. He knows how many fell out in the sink this morning. That's how much God pays attention to you. Nobody is ever going to love you any more than God does. See, you spell love A-T-T-E-N-T-I-O-N. -T -T -E attention. And, and I've heard a lot of men say, well, I, I don't know what my kids and my wife want. You know, I give them everything they need. I buy them everything they need. What more could they want? Well, they want you. They want your attention. That's the most priceless gift that you can give a person. Because your attention is your time, and your time is your life. And when you give your time to somebody, you're never getting that back. I can give you some money, but I can always go get more money. But I can't get more time. And so when I give you my attention, I'm giving you my life. And I give it to you because I'm saying, you're worth it. You matter to me. My attention is on you because you matter. One of the ways that you affirm your kids is just by paying attention to them. Look at what Jesus did in the Bible if you read through the Gospels. Everywhere he went, he gave people a look, a word, a touch. He paid attention to people. So that's number one. We give visual attention. Number two, physical affection. 
The way you affirm people's value is by physical affection. God does this. In, in, in Hosea 11.4, in God's talking about Israel, he says this, I lifted him like a baby to my cheek. I bent down to feed him. Any parent knows exactly what he's talking about. Every parent has picked up children thousands and thousands of times. I picked them up and I held them to my cheek. Can you feel the tenderness that is in those words as God is speaking that over Israel and effectively to over all of us? Do you know that God made you with skin that is made to be touched? You actually need touch to thrive. Did you know that babies, if they're not touched enough as infants, get what's de they develop what's called failure to thrive syndrome? Their brains don't actually fully develop. It's, uh, it's why uh, NICU and neonatal nurses will go in to where the babies are kept, the, the, the preemies, in incubators or whatever, and that's why they'll massage them and touch them repeatedly. Because if they don't do that, then their brains don't fully develop. Your kids need to be touched. Now I know some of you dads go, well, I'm just not a touchy-feely guy. Well, get over it. <laughs> okay? You can learn that. If you love your kids, you can learn that, that they need that, and you can do that. So physical affection, visual attention, and the final thing is verbal appreciation. Verbal appreciation is nothing more than just telling people how valuable they are. When you send somebody a birthday card, you don't just write your name at the bottom. No. You write something that takes a while and you tell them the things that they could read over and over again that you value in your lives. And so are you giving the people who are significant to you verbal appreciation? So if, if you've ever bought a house and you held on to it for at least four or five years, hopefully you know the meaning of the word appreciation, right? That means that it raises in value. And then on the other hand, if you've ever bought a new car and driven it off the lot, you know the value of depreciation, right? Because all, the moment the car hits the street, it's worth thousands of dollars less than you just paid for it. Appreciation raises value, depreciation lowers value. So what are you doing with your kids? Are you raising their value through appreciating them? Or are you lowering their value through put-downs and sarcasm and all kinds of things that aren't really healthy? Every time I appreciate my wife, I raise her value, I raise her value to me, I raise her value to the entire world and everybody else. Every time I appreciate my kids, or eventually when they're old enough to understand my grandkids, I raise their value. Proverbs 12.25 says this, a word of encouragement does wonders. One of the most powerful sentences that you could ever say to a kid, or really anybody else for that matter, is this. You know what you'd be good at? Because, see, we don't 
very often see ourselves the way somebody else sees us. Other people can see the talent that's there. They can see the potential that's there. They can see our personalities much more clearly than we can. And so, oddly enough, most of the world is just waiting for permission to be themselves. And so, saying something like, you know what you would be good at, is such a powerful affirmation in the life of a child because you're giving them permission to pursue something like that. So I want to close now with this one last verse. And it's from Proverbs again, Proverbs 14.26. And Proverbs 14.26 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Reverence for God gives a man deep strength and all his children have a place of refuge and security. What I'm trying to say here is that the key to becoming a great parent is to be a godly person. The key to becoming a great friend is to become a godly person. The key to becoming a great spouse is to be a godly person. The truth is that human love wears out and it's just sometimes it's a fact your kids or your significant others are unlovable. That's when we need it the most. That's why we need God's love. We need His power and His wisdom. And just as a by the way, do you realize that the two things that we looked at today, acceptance and affirmation, are just some of the ways that your Heavenly Father treats you. He's just saying, I want you to treat your kids the same way that I treat you. My children. Your Heavenly Father accepts your uniqueness completely. He doesn't want you to be somebody that you're not. And your Heavenly Father affirms your value constantly. Why? Because he made you, because Jesus died for you, and because God's Spirit lives in you. And so next week, we're going to look at three more ways of getting our children or other people to be uh, the best that they can be. So let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your great words today. Thank you how scripture is truly so full of wisdom and insight and the words in it are of such great value. We tend sometimes to think that it's just a book of religious things, but it is so full of the practical, of the things that we need to do to be successful in our everyday dealings with people. Even with the, the complex role of being a parent. And so Father, bind these principles to our spirit. Help us to remember them as we deal with children or with friends especially perhaps with people we don't like, 
Give us your strength to be accepting and affirming even with them. As it says in Proverbs, a gentle answer turns away wrath. So Father, I just pray your great blessings now upon each and every person gathered here. Give you thanks for them. Ask that you be at work in their lives. Give them opportunities to touch not only uh, the children that they're around, but the people that they're around as well. Keep them safe. Keep them in your word until we have the chance to be together again. So we give you thanks and praise and we ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Happy Easter. God bless you all and have a terrific week until we have the chance to see you again. God bless. Amen.